Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail. And we are the active voice of Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Welcome to our weekly podcast. Our mission is to showcase vital women between the ages of 70 to 100 plus who shatter the myth that we become irrelevant as we age. These women lead fulfilling lives for themselves and others. Visit our website, womenover70.com, where you can access all the episodes. We also invite you to join our monthly podcast club. And we welcome speaking to your organization or group on Aging Reimagined. If women aging is a market you would like to reach, consider sponsoring an episode. Finally, if you are an author with a book about women, check out our book promotion opportunity. And today we're delighted to be talking with Sunny Fisher, age 76, from Evanston, Illinois. Sunny has devoted much of her life's work to issues of violence against women, focusing on awareness and prevention. Whether as co-founder, executive director, board member, consultant, philanthropist, or volunteer, locally and nationally, Sunny continues to be an ardent spokesperson for women's empowerment at home, at work, in the community, and in politics. Sunny is past chair and currently serves as the board of the National Futures Without Violence, a violence prevention organization. We will also hear about Sunny's ongoing work to promote affordable housing, especially through the National Public Housing Museum, whose board she chairs. Thanks to Patty Novick, episode number 25, for connecting us with Sunny. So welcome, Sunny Fisher, to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. We're honored to be in conversation with you today. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you. So, Sunny, what, let's just begin by having you talk a bit about some of your early or er, earlier life uh, experiences that influenced your long-term commitment to women's issues. Well, sure. Um, I grew up in a family of women, really, my two older sisters, uh, one of them 12 years older and the other one five years older, uh, were very, very influential in my life. Um, my, our mother died when I was five, and my lucky enough to have a wonderful stepmother, and she also was, uh, was very, very strong, I don't think, <laughs> very strong feminist. I do remember at one point, uh, this was, oh, I must have been about eight years old, and I saw her write her name, and it was her name. Um, she took my my father's last name, but it was not Mrs. Ben Cabico, it was Gussie Cabico. And I said, well, shouldn't you be Mrs.? And she said, no, that, this is my name. <laughs> and that's what, and I, I made, and I remember that so vividly, even though it's like, you know, more than 70 years ago. But she, she was a uh, um, uh, love to work, and I think... I got my my sense of being uh, of needing to do things that were useful from her, and even when just before she got Alzheimer's, unfortunately got Alzheimer's, uh, and she had retired from a job as the head of a, a bakery drivers union, uh, she still volunteered wherever she could because she she just needed to be busy and she needed to be contributing. 
So I think though that my my sense of women's issues, besides you know, hearing my sisters talk on and their own experiences and a few of my own also um, not very pleasant experiences, especially with men, mm-hmm. I um, I was teaching at, at a private girls' school, and we just uh, we decided that we would we would another faculty member and I was teaching English decided to create a women's studies course and as um, we researched more and learned more um, we were able to talk to these young women high school students who were also learning and challenging and and I think I, I began to see even more deeply what women and women's education how that formed a, a society and a society that that was in great need of change. I think probably the, I got radicalized, however, when I was volunteering as a, as a, in a crisis center to deal with violence against women. Um, they, they was one of the first shelters in the country. This was way back in 1970, trying to remember, seven, uh, it was probably 70, um, seven or eight. And we, um, we were doing a lot of community education uh, about just crisis intervention in general when one of the counselors asked if I would be trained as a rape victim advocate. So I got the special 40-hour training and I did start working with rape victims. And I think that is what really uh, pushed me and, and educated me about this dramatic, most dramatic, I think, form of sexism, the violence, uh, sexual assault and domestic violence. And uh, I, I became a community educator at that point. We did a lot of organizing. And when we moved back to Chicago and I was finishing a social work degree at the University of Chicago, uh, almost every paper I could possibly write, I did on violence against women. Mm-hmm. And then I, I began to work at a shelter uh, in, in Evanston, it was a, a, a new shelter at the YWCA, and um, I think that that just kind of solidified my my interest in and my need really to try to do something about about this issue. You know, I'm curious when you're at the University of Chicago and you said you wrote papers on this issue as often as as possible. Were you encouraged to do so, or did you have to? Absolutely, no, absolutely. You were. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, the dean of the school, and then she also taught a course that I took, um, uh, was very active in, in the movement, had done her own dissertation on sexual assault on college campuses, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. And, uh, and my placement was um, with a, the Chicago Law Enforcement Study Group, and we did a study of police response to domestic violence, mm-hmm. and battered women's complaints, I think was the exact title. So that was just after the law had passed in 1982. And um, we, uh, when we published the study, it, it did get quite a bit of press at the time. And, and we hope it, it helped the advocates um, you know, with this research in hand, be able to figure out how to, how to work with police and train police. Maybe I missed it, but what law were you referring to? Uh, the domestic violence law that was passed mm-hmm. that, that gave um, many more rights to domestic violence victims. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Sure. I was just wondering if, did you work with law enforcement then and in terms of training and ori- orienting them? 
I did when I was in uh, in Maryland when, at the, the um, at the crisis center. We okay. were training police then. We were training them both in crisis intervention techniques to try to defuse situations because many many police felt that they were endangered when they when they were called to a domestic violence situation, and um, we were able to give them some some skills on how to diffuse the situation and also some accurate information about what might actually be going on, judging from the experiences that our clients had had. You know, you're, um, I just touched on a few broad strokes in the introduction about your activism over the years, and it's taken so many forms. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious about what philosophy or philosophies guide your work as a social activist? Uh, it's it's a really good question. I don't know if I've ever ever thought about them as philosophies, but I guess uh, part of it was was maybe it's characterological and being the third child uh, in, in a at, at a you know, with two very powerful sisters <laughs> but i learned how to listen a lot <laughs> and i i i think that was also you know that's one of the things we learn in social work school too of course is to actively listen to, to mm -hmm. people and i think working with clients um was very very helpful as i i moved into being uh, working in philanthropy um, because people who are actual and, and 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 policy also we need to know how policies are affecting individual people we we need to know how our social work would affect individuals uh, so listening and listening courtesy i think was one of the most important things that that um, if it is this it's a it is a skill, I believe, and and uh, that that helped me do the work that I've done. Um, I, and I think if I turn to turn that into a philosophy, perhaps, or at least a, a way of working, it's to to listen to to see to understand sometimes from our own experiences, whatever issue it is, that to research it and then to try to name it and then strategize and then organize. I, anything I've done, I've never done alone, and I've I've always been very grateful for people who to work with, to work for, <laughs> and and to have work um, for me. And, and whenever I was in a leadership position, uh, but but I think that 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 was you know if there is uh, any kind of a uh, way of, of thinking about it, that that's probably what I the best I could come up mm -hmm. with right now. Um, for our, I think our listeners would really like to know, hear some about some of the different positions and leadership roles that you've held. I didn't name them specifically. There's too many. Um, <laughs> so if you, if you, um, just well, maybe ones that really stand out for you that you felt you, you and the, the people you, you worked with were able to really move the agenda forward. Uh, yeah, I think. Probably, and and it I, it's probably started when I when I um, I started working at the crisis center in in Bethesda, and that I did as a volunteer. And many of my the positions that 
that I got afterwards came from volunteer work as well. Um, by the way, it was just a, I, I, after, after uh, ending my teaching career, I, I and I'm working at the Evanston shelter. And that, again, I started as a volunteer at the shelter. I was, I, 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 I do believe that working with the, the Sophia Fund was probably the pivotal point in my life. And I'll be forever grateful to Lucia Woods Lindley, who sadly just passed away last month um, for, for giving me that opportunity. And tell us about that fund, because I think so our listeners, some of our listeners, well, they're all around the country and oh, other sure. parts of the world. So sure. tell us about that fund. It was started by Lucia, and this was in, in 1981, and I had just come back from, from Maryland. Um, I, she had been a philanthropist, an, an individual donor for, for many years. Her, uh, her uh, work on, um, on, in philanthropy it was, was through her family foundation, which was the Woods Charitable Trust, it's called now. Uh, the Woods Fund of Chicago, I'm sorry, it was called the Woods Charitable Trust. And she worked with a Jean Rudd, who was the head of that, that foundation. And actually, she assigned me to work with Jean for the, about the first two months that uh, after being hired, because uh, Jean was, was uh, just a pro. And if I have a mentor in, in philanthropy, it's Jean Rudd. And, and Lucia um, was very interested in women's issues particularly on reproductive rights. Um, when she heard about my background from a mutual friend, she, we, we had lunch one day and she talked about the idea of starting this a women's foundation. She said that um, she was hoping to find five or six other women like her who could give $100,000 or more to women's issues. And she wanted someone like me to help to distribute those funds to, to, the, to women's groups. And the fact that I had the experience uh, on issues of, of, of rape and domestic violence, she was, she was uh, pretty interested in that. And so um, uh, keeping the story a little shorter, she, is, uh, she hired me and, and I started doing the research on women's funds around the country. There were only seven at the time. Mm. I, and so it wasn't that hard. And I met some wonderful women who were also pretty interested in, in figuring out how to increase philanthropy from and for women. Tracy Gary among them. She was, she was really a, an extraordinary teacher and she still is, she's still working in this field. And, um, and so Lucia and I started, I, it took a long time to come up with the Sophia Fund, which is a totally other story, but she, that, that's what she, she did not want to call it the Lucia Woods Lindley Fund. But um, as the Sophia Fund began as a private women's foundation, I think it was the first and only foundation that gave just women's issues. There were a number of other donors that were funding issues like reproductive rights or, or um, how to stop violence or economic justice as it affects women. But we were really the first. And then as I did the research, I, I was... Um, uh, taken with the idea of a public women's foundation uh, as they had in San Francisco, as they were starting in San Francisco and in Dallas at the time and in New York, I believe as well. And, uh, and that, that became the model for the Chicago Foundation for Women. 
there were four of us, Lucia and I and Iris Krieg and Marjorie Benton, who were the four founders. And that's where, as I said, uh, <laughs> we started to listen. I talked to everybody I could possibly talk to. Mm -hmm. I, uh, uh, my, my colleagues out of the four of us were very um, uh, well-versed in philanthropy and I was coming out of the women's movement. So we were, we were really well-matched. And I mm -hmm. talked to just about everybody I could, I could think of nationally and locally and then began to name what some of the issues were in philanthropy that we weren't getting enough money. It's really pretty mm -hmm. much what it was. And then figuring out how to, to um, strategize around it and organize around it. Yeah, I wanted to ask you then at that time, what were, what were some of the, the prominent issues, women's issues? Uh, you know, what's very sad is that you can uh, <laughs> will, we, will we find these familiar and you will find it familiar there are there are some of the organizations that that we funded are still around and i think um i think a lot of them are around because of the chicago foundation for women which by the way now incorporated the, the, the sophia fund and sophia is part of cfw but um, violence against women is, is probably on the agenda of every single women's fund in the country. Mm -hmm. Now, when there were seven in, back in 1982 or three, there are now way over 100 around the world. So it, it has grown and, and um, millions and hundreds of millions of dollars are now being given, but it's still a too small an amount, too small a percentage of what traditional philanthropy gives to mm -hmm. women's issues. I think when we started, it was less than 2%. And now I think it's up to about 6%, 6 or 7%. Wow. So there's still a long way to go. But the issues are the same. Reproductive rights is way up there. Um, I, um, economic justice is the other issue that Lucia and I decided to add on. And it's certainly the same, an, an issue that's uh, on, on, on many of those organizations' organizations' grants list. Uh, it's uh, it's really important if a woman's to control her own life, then she has to be free from violence. She has to be able to to determine when and if she should have children. And the and the last one is to be able to take care of herself and and her children, or have the means to do so, should she find herself uh, alone in that position. So there there are there are. Um, Many other issues, of course, that have been added on over the years, but but those were the three. And the other the other goal that we had, the other mission that we had, was to to educate women and encourage women to be involved in philanthropy. Um, we were when we started CFW, we were really wanted. <laughs> we certainly wanted those million dollar checks. But we were just we were we were thrilled with a five dollar check. We know that for some women that was a big reach too, and I'll, I'll never forget the one woman who wrote a fifty dollar check as a as a contribution at one of our fundraising events, and she said to me, "This is the first time that I've written a check to a to an organization without asking my husband first. <laughs> so, <laughs> so how apropos. <laughs> so it was, you know, step by step, we got there. And now I know the foundation is giving away, CFW is giving away, I think between three and $4 million. Mm. Annually? Yes. Mm -hmm. That's that's fabulous. Are you familiar with um, Jane Doe, Inc., out of Massachusetts? No, I'm not. 
It's a consortium of uh, rape and domestic violence organizations. Uh, I know the woman who's executive director, she has to be related to me. And uh, they've been doing just tremendous work there and getting a lot of publicity lately. And I know that their, their organization, you know, they rely on grants. And so um, tell me a little bit more about Chicago Foundation for Women, how they, you know, do they set certain criteria and then seek uh, organizations? How, how do they work? Uh, yes. That's what they do. They they set certain criteria. They they have um, they have a um, deadlines. They also give a, a lot of of um, of help to organizations that capacity building so that that the women's organizations in the city can stay strong. Mm -hmm. uh, it does fund uh, only in the Chicago area, the right. Chicago and, and the surrounding areas. And uh, they they give to both advocacy and uh, that that's their their main goal. Um, I think when we started, that was our our thought too. Is that uh, social services are so important? They're, they're uh, and, and that's where we learn from. That's what we know are necessary. We also know that to make social change, that you need to change laws, you need to change practices, and you need to change minds. Mm -hmm. So that's the that's why our focus has been and I believe still is on advocacy mm -hmm. systems change. I'm interested to know, you mentioned, uh, well, Catherine mentioned in, in her introduction of you about the National Public Housing, Housing Museum. Yes. Can, tell us a little bit more about your involvement in that arena. Sure. Uh, I, when I, um, when the Sophia Fund merged with Chicago Foundation for Women, I became a consultant and I mostly consulted with other foundations and with nonprofits. Mm -hmm. One of the foundations who became a client was the Richard Driehaus Foundation. Mm -hmm. So I became part-time executive director there as I, I did some other, some of the other work that I was doing. And um, also, uh, well, if we have time, I'll tell you about something, a really interesting project I had at the Joyce Foundation as well. But uh, Richard, Richard's interest was, uh, one of his major interests was in landmark preservation. And uh, we funded a lot of the large institutions nationally and, and locally, the National Trust for Historic Preservation, Landmarks Illinois. And, and both of those organizations began to be more interested um, after a while and after uh, some really interesting um, advocacy for programs for, for the um, programs and for um, preserving uh, um, places that that represented not just the wealthy but uh, other other people's history uh, women's history for example and um, the, the history of, of um, Latinos and African Americans and, and uh, Asians. Uh, I also got particularly interested in, in how landmark preservation could help in, in um, affordable housing because there was so much demolition in Chicago and there are still huge swaths of land on the south and west sides that are totally empty. And, and have not been redeveloped. And 
doing a little research about that, I realized that some of those buildings were torn down because neighbors were complaining that an abandoned building had become a crack house. So the police and the city, instead of saying, well, let's see what we can do for the people who are in that crack house and how we can preserve a building that's in relatively good shape, um, and, and, and maybe you know, open it again with apartments for people to live in, uh, it became demolition. It was called drive-by demolition, in fact. You know, they just see that house. There was there are people who are who are using crack that are in there, let's tear it down. And so it's uh it was a it it was a real interest of, of ours at the foundation and we we at the Driehaus Foundation and we funded um it was a project at the United Way particularly and 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 um, LISC, the local initiative support corporation, to see what we could learn from the from the um, preservation communities that had been able to save very fancy houses. <laughs> so how did they do it? And so uh, and this kind of got a, a little bit of a little bit of press. We were known. We were one of the only foundations in the city that funded historic preservation, and residents from uh, public housing came to visit me and asked if I could help them to start a national, a, a public housing museum. At that time, we weren't sure it was going to be national, but a public housing museum. Devira Beverly, Ms. Devira Beverly uh, said to me, and she said, uh, I I want my grandchildren and my children and to know about my experiences, but as public housing is being demolished, so is my history. Mm-hmm. And I would like to, I, I think this museum will help to, to at least preserve our, our history mm. and also bring up some of the issues that, that um, we as public housing residents had faced. Uh, she didn't know at the time that I had grown up in public housing in the Bronx and it was, uh, you know, she found out later and she looked at me and she said, yeah, well, how about that? <laughs> it was pretty, uh, pretty unusual. Um, but it certainly was one of the things that uh, had helped my family a lot in, at, at, uh, when, when we needed it. Um, and it was, public housing was very different back in the early 50s than it became, especially how it became in Chicago. Um, but I, I was, oh, I've always been interested in housing issues. And this seemed to be connected to a lot of the other work that we were doing as a foundation, which was issues of art and how art could help um, social change. Mm-hmm. I think also I have to mention that the Lower East Side Tenement Museum and my meetings uh, there with Ruth Abram, who was the founder and president at the time, affected the way I looked at museums forever because it was one of the most exciting places I had ever been. You, it was, it's just, um, you, you learn the stories, you're walking in the footsteps of people who were immigrants from 1853 to 1935. It was, it's, um, it's all about social change and social issues. Uh, the docent makes you think with every question that, that he or she asks you. It's just, it's, a, it's really a, a, a remarkable experience. And when I heard the idea of a, of a public housing museum, I thought, gee, maybe this is the chance for Chicago, because I had been working behind the scenes to see if we could start a tenement museum in Chicago. And yet this one seemed to be, as Ruth put it, Ruth Abrams put it, the next best idea after a tenement uh-huh. museum, as a public uh-huh. museum. Uh-huh. So, 
So, and it is a museum that that still brings up the issues of housing, affordable housing, certainly, and fair housing and um, eviction issues right now. Um, the the uh, the impact of of how the housing authority affects the the residents. What happens with, with police? How what is policing like in public housing? And so, of course, things have changed a lot since we started the museum and. 2007 really uh, we are working to raise the money to finish construction of a, of, of a, a building in the Jane Adams homes it's actually it was built in 1938 by John Hollabird mm -hmm. during the depression there were a lot of very famous architects who were working on public housing buildings mm -hmm. so it has it has a a, a lot of um, a lot to offer we believe and um, that's pretty much what's taking most of my time right now I was going to ask, Sonny, because I know that you, you, as I mentioned, you chair the board of this National Public Housing Museum. And what else is on your horizon? Um, do you mean as, well, I'm, I'm still doing a little bit of consulting with, with foundations and nonprofits. And I try to be helpful when people just call for advice in various ways. Um, the museum and the two other boards, Futures Without Violence, and I'm actually on the the Driehaus Museum, uh, the Richard Driehaus Museum board as well, and I'm on several advisory committees. So that um, the, the School of Social Services, which I just found out today, is now going to be called the Crown School, and I haven't memorized the name yet, but I think it's a family of social service. So, so we won't use retirement when we talk about you, but I'm um, <laughs> wondering about just to take a little bit more personal uh, about how you do you think about getting older and, and if you do, how do you think about it? Yeah, um, I, I can't help but think about it. There are times when I try not to, but I do certainly, especially as um, each birthday comes around. And I feel that there's, as, as one of my friends, Ruth Rothstein, said when she was 90, uh, there's a lot more time behind me than ahead of me. Uh, it's so interesting because I, when I, I said to Ruth, when she said this to me, wow, <laughs> it took you till you're 87 to say that. That's really pretty good. <laughs> there was always so much more ahead of her. <laughs> and, <laughs> And I also, I, I'm, I'm very lucky to have um, uh, women who are older than I uh, in my life. Um, one of my, my closest friends is, is Bernice Weisbord, who was just 98 this week. Mm. Bernice was the founder of, of Family Focus. And she is, uh, she's been an activist all her life, but she started, actually she started Family Focus in her 50s. And, I, and she said that um, when I asked her about how she felt about aging, she said, well, I think there are three A's of aging. It's accept, adapt, and appreciate. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, that's a, that's a really good motto. I, I, I haven't done it yet, but I promised I would embroider something <laughs> for her. Accept, adapt, and appreciate. Hang it on the wall. Because <laughs> it's not that easy. There are moments when you think, damn, it's not that easy to, to be getting older. Um, but there is a, there is, it is a time also uh, to, to appreciate it. I mean, nobody can get to age 76 and not have experienced a lot of loss. And I am the only person left in my family, actually. My, my, uh, 
my original family. And it is, a, it is uh, so it's, it's important to be able to accept that fact and adapt to it and then appreciate all of the, the good memories that, that I had from it. Um, I, I, also, I also think it's a time to let go. It's a lot, time to let go of stuff. And it's also a time to uh, let go of things that I, I just can't do anything about. Um, sometimes that's that's uh, you know, certain aspects of grief, and sometimes it's um, you know uh, old hurts, and it's sometimes it's just um, let go of. of Everything but certain dreams. <laughs> that I mean, I, that, that, I mean things that that uh, I, sometimes there are things that I can't do anything about, but I've still got the dreams to try. <laughs> and, and I and, and I and I do. I still I think staying engaged has been incredibly helpful mm -hmm. in dealing and and also trying to stay healthy. This has been a year when we all I think have, have uh, been aware of the importance of staying healthy. And I'm. Uh, it's also a year when we we see all the disparities that all of us have been trying to to address for so many years just come uh, full force at us. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot more work to do, whether it's politically or it's volunteer work or it's uh, through the organizations. In fact, we're 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 planning at the Public Housing Museum uh, eventually to have an exhibit about about public health and the impact on people mm -hmm. who lived in public housing, who lived in public housing. So is, is that, a, is that, does that answer make? That does indeed. I love it. <laughs> it's very inspirational. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yes. Thank you. Um, yeah. I thank you so much. Um, we need to bring it to this to a close, but I'm sad to do that. <laughs> but thank you, Sunny, so much for being thank with us today. Too. Thank you for the work that you're doing, and thanks so much for inviting me. Oh, you're very welcome. And listeners, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Become an active participant in our community through our Facebook group. And no matter your age, participate in our monthly Zoom gatherings. You'll find everything you need to know about Women Over 70 on womenover70.com. See you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myths that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com.